You're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 711 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 711 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode's a little bit different. My good friend Michael Bungay-Stanier and I have books coming out around the same time that kind of delved on around the same topics. And so Uh, My new book, Under New Management, launches this week, and rather than just sort of bloviate about my own book, which I'm sure by now you've heard a little bit about, if you haven't, please check out the book at davidberkus.com slash undernewmanagement or davidberkus.com slash preorder. If you have, then I thought you'd be more interested in listening to us chat about, in general, the world of work and the way that it's changing and what tools managers and leaders need to be equipped for that change. So that's what we did. We both run podcasts, and so we decided to put them both together. I think it's really quite cool. You'll listen to sort of an uncut. It's a little bit longer than a normal show, but that's because it's two shows in one. It's his and mine. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. So let's get started. Okay, so so normally, I mean, I start everything with who are you and what are you doing here? But in your case, since we're doing this kind of joint thing, who who are we and what are we doing here, Michael? <laughs> That's awesome. So this is cool, isn't it, Dave? We've never done something like this. It's sort of hybrid. I'm interviewing you. You're interviewing me. It's turning into feeling like we're down the pub together, just having a beer or a soda or something and talking about the world of work. But okay, who am I? I am Michael Bungay-Stanier from Boxer Crowns. So Boxer Crowns is a small but glorious company that helps People and organizations do less good work and more great work. And we specialize in helping busy managers coach in 10 minutes or less. And as for me, I am an Australian. Had the good luck to fall in love with a Canadian some 25 years ago when we were studying in England together. Uh, So I didn't go back to Australia. But I've ended up now persevering through long, cold winters up here in Canada due to true love. (laughs) <laughs> well, so, okay, so I was going to ask you this question, but I guess you're outside of Toronto, right? I mean, I'm in the heart of Toronto. See, because if you were, if you were a Canadian on the other coast in right. Vancouver or in Alberta, then you might even still be jointly Canadian and Australian. Because the last time I was in Banff, I was overwhelmed with <laughs> Australians and New Zealanders because apparently this whole tribal people just migrate back and forth every, with the seasons, chasing are, snow. I, Australians are great travelers, in part because Australia is just so far away from anywhere that if, you, if you're traveling, you've got to travel. You can't do this, I'll just go for a long weekend because it takes you a long weekend to fly anywhere and Whistler you know Whistler is the big uh, ski resort outside Vancouver and it's like 112% Australian I mean it's ridiculous it's more Australian than Sydney yeah no I was I was I was there um, even still in in March which there was no snow whatsoever it was (laughs) you know that and that was when um, so I was up in Whistler for TED Active and that was when uh, nice. I mean, it was literally, I, I see the 112% because almost every staff member, any, anybody, you go into the Starbucks and the entire Starbucks is Australians and New Zealanders. It was, exactly. it was really, 
it, well, the people listening can't see this, but you and I, are, we're, we're on video here. We can see each other as we're talking, and you can also confirm that all Australian men are just gorgeous. We're yeah, just no, absolutely. Men. Just, just ama- rugged and yet dapper <laughs> at the same time. Exactly. Um, and I guess you can you could confirm that all Americans are probably kind of pasty and overweight. So there's that, right? So I, was, there we I go. wasn't going to say that out loud, but that's what I was thinking. The stereotypes, right, the stereotypes fit. <laughs> So let me ask you this, David, because my audience are listening in as well. So who 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 are you, and why are we having this conversation? Yeah, no, that's a valid that's a valid follow up question. So my name is David Burkus. I am the author of uh, the Myths of Creativity and and the forthcoming book Under New Management. And really, I guess I am a crusader for tearing down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. And so when I get really excited about it, I'm, I'm, by training, I'm an organizational psychologist. But as an undergraduate student, I was a writer. And so really what I get actually excited about is using writing to kind of bridge that gap. Like the very first time, I was, a, I was probably a college sophomore when I read my very first Daniel Pink book and then Malcolm Gladwell a little bit later. And then suddenly I was like, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to bridge the gap between these two things. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. And that's kind of leads you to here. I host a, um, a podcast called Radio Free Leader that does exactly that. We tear down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. And and your work um, does that in a way that you don't, you don't cite the studies, but as I'm reading it, I can see the benefits behind all of these different ideas. And so sure. it really excited me. Yeah, you know, like I'm like you, influenced by people like Dan Pink and Gladwell, and those people who go, look, there's some really interesting stuff going out there in in academia and in kind of the social sciences and behavioral economics. But how do you make this practical for your your typical manager or leader or employee who's out there doing the work, who just wants to live a better life and do work that has more meaning and more impact? How do you help them with that? No, I agree. And, and I think everybody, I think I've never met a manager who wouldn't do something that was evidence-based, based on research of human behavior and behavioral economics, all of those things. Right. They just don't know how because there's no one translating it. So, look, I, I've read your new book and I've loved it. You know, it's got 13 chapters. Each chapter is a kind of flag-waving, drum-beating it's not exactly a rant, but it's a little bit of a rant about It's a mini things, rant. It's a mini yeah, rant. Yeah. Drive you a little crazy about work. So, um, and I know that as part of what you do, you speak and consult widely with different organizations. And so when you look at the world of work and the exposure to it, you know, what, where do you see it's broken? Where is it not really working? So I think that, um, I mean, I, I actually, the, the phrase I use to open the book is this idea that management needs new management, meaning mm. the people who are in charge need to give managers better tools. Right. Um, the tools that we're using now are uh, basically a, a slightly modified version of Frederick Taylor and scientific management, right? Exactly. And we've had we've had a hundred years of research since uh, actually a hundred and two since the principles of scientific management was published, and yet most of how we operate is still based on this idea that this idea that a we can easily quantify everything that matters, mm-hmm. and b if we just incentivize it and then monitor people producing it, we can get it more efficiently, and that was that was definitely true when the goal of management was to figure out how to efficiently make a product, right? Right. And and when product was the fundamental aspect of the factory. But now we've moved from a real, a physical product factory to an idea factory, right? And we're asking that the value is created inside the heads of people. And so... The, we haven't shifted our tools from product-centric to people-centric yet. We're starting to, and there are companies that are starting to, and it, it's weird because the companies that do look very different from business as usual. And really, that's because business uh, isn't usual anymore. So, I mean, I, mean I, I completely agree with you. You know, like the, the, the scientific management and tailor work is basically, look, human beings, they're just they're, they're cogs in a machine. 
and we want them to be as cog-like as possible, which means we're going to assume that they're rational and that they're going to can do the same thing over and over again. And, and you manage them like you would manage a machine, which is you keep them in place and you oil them occasionally. Mm. And, you know, I remember reading Dan Pink's book, Drive, and he's going, you know, the summary of this as a tweet is everything you know about motivation is wrong. <laughs> right, <laughs> do it differently. Right. Um, and you're speaking to that uh, when you talk about this, which is, Work is evolving. You know, the future is here. It's just not here evenly yet. It's unevenly spread around. What, what in your mind, keeps us stuck in discredited 102-year-old approach to this is how you structure and manage a company? Why are we still just churning out the wrong models? Right. It's, I mean, especially after it's, it's been, what, three-plus three, three plus years since Dan's book, Drive, came out, right? So you think right. we would have got – and, the, I mean, the dirty little secret is that it doesn't just apply to motivation. Everything right. changes when the nature of work changes. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the number one thing as I was writing the book that is, is, is what came to me is why are we still stuck is that you'd find people that would go – well, yeah, but best practices are still working. And and my mind is a little, you know, like riddled with ADHD. My mind actually went right when they said that. My mind went from business to the internal combustion engine, which mm. if you ever took an engineering class, the internal combustion engine is only about 30% efficient, meaning that right. all of the fuel that we put in gasoline, only about 30% of the energy that's stored in that gasoline goes into forward motion. Right. So, yes, you could say that the engine is working, Right. Yeah. And, and for most of the time, that's exactly what we did. And so the same way you could say that an organization is working. And in fact, you look at like the Gallup engagement numbers and it's even less than 30 percent. It's usually yeah. somewhere around 20, right? 18. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, you could say it's working. We're getting 18 percent engagement. But I think the, the people like you said, the future is here. It's just not evenly dispersed yet. The people who are already there in the future of work. They're the ones who weren't satisfied. To, to abuse the engine analogy, mm-hmm. they're the Elon Musks of the world that said, forget exactly. this, there, there has to be a better way. Yeah. And that's, those are the people that I'm interested in, the people that say, yeah, the way we used to define working needs to be thrown out. 18% engagement should not count as working. What yeah. should and how do we get that? I love that. You know, that this is you write, you talk about this in the afterword of your book, right, after the 13 chapters, and you, you make this metaphor, and it's a really strong analogy, which is, you know, the engine – it works, but it doesn't work nearly as well as what it what it really could be. Um, so, and I know I, I want to. I know we're going. This is a conversation because this is so interesting for me because I'm banging the same drum. Um, do you think that organizations have to be? They can't transform from the old to the new. I mean, do you have to be an Elon Musk and start a new company, literally and metaphorically? Or can you actually, because a lot of the examples you give in your book are kind of tech companies or not, or kind of relatively recent knowledge-based companies. Yeah. Well, and even, even the ones that are not, you know, technology-oriented, usually the idea that they're getting profiled for, they started with. Yeah. But there, there are organizations that made the subtle changes um, over time. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it usually, I mean, you see this, what's interesting about it is you, you see this, there's sort of a tech company and sort of a retail company, but you see it in a company like Zappos, which is making mm-hmm. the giant move to Holacracy, which I'll, I'll be 100% transparent, the jury is still out for me on Holacracy as yeah, a model. As a, as a as an empowerment method, I'm all, I'm all for anything we can do right. to kind of flatten and, and reduce and, and let allow for self managed teams. I'm not sure that that's the right operating system, but still, so they they move and they and they transition and they lose people and it's it's tempting to say. I mean, they gave their offer, you know, the paying to quit offer to to everybody, and I think it was something like 20 percent or 15 percent of the management right. class decided to leave. 
And so that's that's if you're willing to do that, which Tony Shea was, then I think you can still do it. But I think you're absolutely right. For the most part, there are people who, when you ask them to envision the future, don't mm. don't want to do it because it endangers the current, right? Right. And and those people either need to be invited to be successful elsewhere or need to be sort of shown the better way. And I think that the amount of effort involved in that is when you're especially when you're thinking on a quarter by quarter basis for profitability, yeah. et cetera. I think the amount of effort involved scares most people and they just decide, you know what, we'll survive till the turn of the quarter and then maybe we'll reevaluate. And then they never do. You know, for me, it also makes me think about just how we as human beings react to change at a kind of neurological level. You know, so we're talking about your new book. I've also got a new book out called The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more and change the way you lead forever. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is this sense of the neuroscience of engagement. Mm -hmm. Now, the four elements of the neuroscience of engagement spell the word Terra, T-E-R-A, and they stand for tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. So you can see that when you talk about some of the future-focused, future-forward forms of organization that you've referenced and some of the changes you talk about in your book, David, that potentially has a huge impact on things like uh, autonomy. Fantastic. Um, but you know what? It has a decreasing impact on things like expectations because now we're moving into a place of uncertainty and it has a potentially a decreasing impact on things like rank. So for managers or people who've got to a certain level in an organization, they're like, this is the thing that got me to my level of control and seniority at the moment. I don't want to give any of that stuff up. So there's just, you've got this uh, challenge to, to go through, which is there's a bunch of people who actually, when you talk about some of the proposals that you've put out in the book and some of the stuff that I talk about in the coaching habit as well, it, it actually triggers kind of, this is a place of risk, this is a place of fight or flight, rather than, oh, it's a promised world, let me go, let me see what that's right. like. Yeah, no, I mean, one, of, one of the strongest parallels I saw between both of our books was in, so in, in my book, there's a chapter on ditching performance appraisals, yeah. which, which honestly we could do if everyone had a copy of The Coaching Habit, right? Because if, <laughs> if they knew like, okay, here's a simple template and you can right. do quarterly or even weekly check-ins and only spend about 10 minutes and then you'll never need the performance evaluation. Yeah, but you're exactly. exactly right. We have a system where the people who have sort of in most bigger organizations, the people who have gotten to the top got there through this performance yeah. evaluation and high potential programs and all these elaborate schemes that are, are, I mean, actually not that effective if you think about yeah. it. I mean, one of my favorites is in the performance evaluation sort of process. What we usually do is is map out a career plan. Like, here's what you're going to do in three years and five years, right. et cetera. And you can't do that anymore. I mean, you don't even know <laughs> if, the, if the company will exist in three to five years, let alone if you – the, the plan – I mean, literally, you might be going down the road and then suddenly the bridge disappears because right, the plan exactly. you thought doesn't exist anymore. So teaching people to sort of – like I love that you call it a habit. Teaching people – managers, equipping them with the habit of constantly doing this is right. really the only effective way forward because – while we want to embrace the stability that we used to have for that comfort's sake, exactly what you were talking about, it's not there anymore. And so the yeah. only thing we need to do is to be cyclical, to be habitual about constantly checking in on progress and ch yeah. constantly reevaluating all of those things. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, I know in your uh, a pretty recent uh, podcast you put out with your latest interview with Dan Pink, who we, you know, we're having a little love in with Dan here. 
you know, and, and he's talking about he's talking about that. He's like this idea of a five year plan, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if you read his 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 most obscure book is the Adventure of, of Johnny, Johnny Bunko, which I think oh, like I love rule, that book. rule number here. Actually, hang on, you hang on. <laughs> <laughs> well, David's gone off to get the book, but for those of you who are listening who may not know this, it's a, um, a ma- it's a manga-style career guide for people who are just starting off. And I can't remember the five rules of all of them, but I know one of them is there is no plan. Yeah, rule number <laughs> there is one. No plan. Rule number yeah, one, yeah. there is no plan, right? Exactly. And then even there's even like, um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Rule number one. It's, so this is this is actually so I, you know my my uh, day job or my night job depending on how how where I'm focused is as a, as a university professor and this is like the book that gets handed out to students of like oh, I don't know what I want to do with my, read this and come back to me on Monday exactly and uh, because it's because it's great and you're exactly right it's that there's no plan thing and and you know what's funny is so all of that thing came up because I was you know I got him I got Dan to be on the the podcast this most recent. Well, I guess when we're recording this is the most recent episode, but on a recent episode of the podcast, and I, I we didn't he didn't have a new book out, so we weren't going to do the standard interview. And I, I secretly I just wanted to know kind of like what's I wanted to get him like what are you working on now, right? Yeah, I wanted yeah. to be the first person to break the story of what's Dan working nice. on. He wouldn't let me do that, but then I also tried to get him on like the how do you plan out what you're going to write? And he's like, I don't have a plan. I'm just, I'm <laughs> curious. And then when I write something and then I, I get curious in this next domain and I go after that. And it was just like, you, if, I mean, Dan's had a tremendous amount of success as an author, but like, that's the same thing that, can, that's the only strategy that can work in this new ever shifting territory is right. not even, I mean, people say, follow your bliss. I don't even know that that's true. Just follow, follow your curiosity. Right. Cause I think there's something about you find your bliss by following your curiosity. Because honestly, this what I do now, what I'm really excited about, you know, right now is how do I help? How do I change the way management and leadership works by making managers and leaders more coach-like? But if you honestly, if you'd asked me that ten years ago and go, "Here's this is going to be your bliss, Michael," I'm like, mm, that I'm not. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure there's something else I could be doing that's more bliss-like than that. But it's actually by working through it, you actually start finding the stuff that that lights you up yeah and you know if there's a if you had to summarize my book in a in a tweet it would be a little less advice a little more curiosity yeah no i mean so your book is actually riddled with all of these quotes that i was taking pictures on my phone of because you know i wanted to instagram them which is you know instagramming quotes is so popular right now um and they were all on asking the right questions and i'm I'm a huge fan of warren berger's book um about this issue of just learning how to ask the right questions and i think it's something that you and i it's intrinsic in us because we're we're also writers, and that's basically what you do is is you you're writing a book and you go, huh, that's that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder how that works more. And then suddenly you've yeah. got the idea for sort of the next book. But I don't think people do that in their career. They think there's this broad that that they're going to have the best success doing a SWOT analysis and an environmental scan and trying to figure out what the most profitable in demand career with the best yeah. chance of options and what. And I don't think it works. I think you just have to say, you know, hey, I, I followed my curiosity because those are the things I would be intrinsically motivated to put effort into. And right. I had no idea where it would go over 40 years, but I knew where it would go for three, and that was good enough. You know, well, I can't remember who said this quote, but I love it. It's the most interesting phrase in science is not eureka, but, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Exa- <laughs> it's, it's, I, think it, I think it's actually is, – is, that's funny, right? Which is – Right, um, exactly. Which is – and then you had – there's one in the book that I wouldn't say the first one that I went to, 
to compliment is actually Jonas Salk, which is basically more elo- eloquently says the same thing. What yeah. what people think of at the moment of discovery is really the discovery of the question. Yeah, I love that. Which too. I think is great, right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's in line with, I remember there's an Einstein quote about if I had an hour to solve a problem, that's I'd spend right. 55 minutes structuring the question. And that's really, I mean, I think that's the strategy, not only for individual careers, but as you write throughout the whole coaching habit of how to manage. It used to be measure and incentivize. And now I think it is just sort of question and bring out. And and in that comes an inherent risk. I, I mean, I want you to speak to this if you can, is there's there's inherent risk that as you start asking people questions, you find they're not actually cut out for the work that you're doing. Right. Right. And, and then it becomes a goal of really it's in everyone's best interest to sort of help them through that. But hopefully you've got an organization that's flexible enough to let people chase their curiosity inside of one organization. Right. So I'd say there's two things to, to speak to that. In, 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 you know, we've taught probably 10,000 managers more actually around some of these skills. And I find that the greatest resistance people have to asking questions is not that risk of they might not have the answer, but that in asking a question, you inherently give up some power and you give it to the other person. <clears throat> so asking a question it's not a simple transference of behavior from I'm going to give you advice to I'm going to ask you a question. It's actually a transference of power and a transference of status and a transference of certainty. Because when you ask a question, who knows what's actually the answer is going to be? You don't know where that conversation is going to go. And I think that's scarier for people than the thought of, well, they may not have the answer or this may reveal them to be a, a, a less successful person. Um, you know, most of the time, it's amazing just how much resource and how much smart and how much insight people actually have if you just give them some of the time to actually ask that question around that. But you have to give that control up. And, and let me use that as a springboard to to transfer a question back to you because, you know, I, I loved your book. There's all sorts of interesting kind of beliefs you have, everything from outlaw email to ditching the appraisal system, which I love that chapter for, for the, the reasons you talked about. Um Here's one of the things that really struck me, which is write the org chart in pencil. And you know, so much of what I'm interested about is how do you disrupt power and hierarchy? And I think asking questions is actually one of the most powerful ways to do that. That's why the coaching habit bangs on about it. But tell me about writing an org chart in pencil and why that's such a disruptive, interesting approach to new management. Yeah, so so this was actually one of my favorite chapters to write. And in fact, I wrote this before we had a contract for the book. And then we decided that while it was fascinating to you, the editor might not want to see this one. So I had to write a second chapter um, as a sample chapter in the proposal. But this one's always fascinated me. And this was actually – this is the chapter – the reason it fascinated me is this is the chapter that came out of the previous book. In the, in the, right. previ- in, in the midst of creativity, I, I talk about the study of Broadway shows and the idea that on Broadway, that. which is inherently creative network of organizations – you have different teams that come together for the production of a show and then separate and go their separate ways and work on different shows. And what you get is this ever-refreshing blend of old and new right. um, connections. And, and really the best years on Broadway were the years where we were at this optimal mix of old and new connections. Now right. that's this not is the Q score, right? Yes, this is the small world Q score, the uh, Brian Uzi and Jarrett Spirits. I mean, I, literally, <laughs> I'm probably going to end up writing about this study in every book because it's right. one of my well, favorite social science I remember studies reading ever. it in the first book and going, that's really cool and it was nice to 
see it again in this book. Yeah, as well, well it'll, I'm sure I'll, it'll make an appearance in whatever else <laughs> I write too. So there you go. It'll be like it'll be like Stan Lee in all those Marvel movies, right? right. It's not a Burkis. It's not a Burkis book unless it has this. But so um, okay, so I'm, so I'm reading this and I'm realizing that like most organizations don't do this, but really creative ones do. And mm-hmm. the, and the reason is that I mean the, the organizational chart. Right as we know it, the lines and boxes, et cetera, was actually an invention of railroad executives. Right, and the railroad is the ultimate definition of doesn't change. Right, you you lay the track, <laughs> right. and you either you I mean it it could change, but for the most part, it does not. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy. the The environment during your operations, all of it will never change. Right? right, but most organizations, especially knowledge work organizations, are having right. to change with the environment. Right? Mm-hmm. If an or I mean, this is biology one hundred and one. If an organism doesn't adapt to the new changes in the environment, the organism dies. Right. So the organization, the same thing. And what that means for most organizations is it means they lay off whole lines of, of a, you know, hierarchy. I mean, I, I used to weigh my first job out of college was in the pharmaceutical industry, and they're the pinnacle of like a, a drug doesn't go to market or it gets pulled, and suddenly 500 people who are on that wing of the org chart are just yeah. without a job. Gone. Yeah. And then, of course, fast forward a year and a half, and there's a new drug coming out, and so suddenly we've got to hire 500 people. But these 500 already found new jobs. Right. Right. So this is it's just madness. And, and Roger Martin has this great article called Rethinking that. the Decision Factory, which is all about this idea that it's madness to have this binge and purge cycle. There are better ways to adapt. And what the reason that we need this adaptation is that if we move from thinking about the product as the thing we design an org chart around to the project, then yeah. we allow for an ever changing org chart. And this is what a lot of really, really wild organizations do. One of my favorite and probably the most applicable is in the early days of IDEO, the famous industrial design yeah. firm. They had their org chart was they had five studio heads. So there were five kind of vice presidents of IDEO. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, they would say, like, here's, here's who I am and here's what I'm going to be working on. And they would present that to the whole company. And then people would basically vote for who they wanted to work with for the next couple of years. And then they would just reshuffle. And all, most of the time, everybody got their first vote. But it allowed that Broadway-style um, yeah. refreshing of teams, which I think you know, most organizations don't do because we're still thinking lines and boxes and we, and we draw them based on products and geography. Mm-hmm. And really, we should be drawing them based on project. In a, in a knowledge work economy, in a knowledge work environment, we should be drawing them based on project, which yeah. to me, I mean, the, the easiest way to phrase that is instead of drawing them in pen, we need to write them in pencil so we can erase them that. and rewrite them whenever we need to. That's so smart. It's such a great metaphor. And, you know, in uh, one of my earlier books, Do More Great Work, I talk about how do you define your great work project and use project-based work as a, a better way of organizing your life. Rather I remember than, that. I might have stolen that from you, actually. Well, I probably stole it from somebody else. So it's, you know, good ideas get passed around. You know, a job description, I, you know, job descriptions carry on even after you've died. If you die in the job, your job description lives on. Mm-hmm. Projects, actually, if you're gone, things change and evolve around that. So I think there's something very smart about how do we get more project-based to be able to do more great work. And part of that is how do we make our organizations more flexible so they can accommodate that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And even, you know, even products don't last forever the way that they used to. You mm-hmm. know, the life cycle of a product is maybe 18 months or so. So even right. thinking about as an organization, what is our product, what is our value proposition, yeah. that's going to change really frequently. And so we should For probably sure. start thinking about those the same way that, that Broadway thinks about shows, that Hollywood thinks about theaters, that design firms think about projects, consulting yeah. assignments think about, you know, that sort of um, temporal idea around how do we organize is probably the, it's probably the only way forward, really. Yeah, nice one. 
So look, I'm noticing our time. We've been going 25 minutes, and we could we could literally go for hours on this because you know you and I are violently agreeing on everything, which is fantastic. Um, well, it's only fantastic because it's violent. If it wasn't violently agreeing, it would be really like, boring. Yes. Well, and and I know. So if it, if it's okay with you, so um, you know, your, your book is all about questions and beautiful questions. Yes. Um, and and I I have que- I always cede power to the guest at the end of my interviews and ask five questions. Can I ask you all our right. five questions? Yeah. Bring okay. them on. I'm and you, I should say that in most of the time I give people forewarning on these so you can plan your answers, you're doing it improv style. Right? Excellent. So, so those of you who are listening, it, they, <laughs> it may not be the best answers, but these are the questions anyway. <laughs> Good. I, li- I like the way you lower expectations. That's important. <laughs> Under promise and over deliver. So first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? The most powerful advice I got was one of my very first bosses saying to me, Michael, you are a good guy. You're a good person. And it was it's very simple, but it was really powerful. Which it, it said to me, you know what? You trust your trust yourself, and take a stand for what matters. You know, in this world, take a stand. You know, we've just been watching Star Wars, so take a stand for the light side, not the dark side. Um, you know, honestly, I, most advice when when people ask me what's my best advice, I often go, number one, ignore almost all of the advice you're ever given. But the the comment that had the most impact for me it still resonates now is Michael, you're a good person. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's it, great. It, it was unlike a lot of feedback here. It's like I felt deeply seen and acknowledged in that very simple statement. Oh no, I agree. And and interestingly, in the nature of most people's advice, it's more a statement about them than it is about you. So I love that that that, that was a definitive statement about you. And David, because this is a joint interview. What's the best advice you've ever got? What's the best advice I've ever received? And just so you know, everybody, we're doing this improv style, so his answer may be a bit crappy, but yeah, yeah give the guy a break. Yeah. What's the <laughs> best advice I've ever received? Um, okay, so this is this is applied to my um, my career. I don't have um, to to some extent. I think I, every once in a while I get imposter syndrome, but what I actually get is. Grr, I am frustrated. I'm not where I want to be. Syndrome, right? Whatever that's called, yeah. right? And one of the things that I tend to over, um, t- I tend to forget when I get frustrated in that is is my age, right? So as of this recording, I'm 32 years old. I'm I'm young. I'm new Very in this young. thing, yeah, yeah. and I tend to forget that. And I tend to get frustrated when I see people who are in their 40s and 50s doing really big stuff. Yeah. That I want to be doing now, and so one of the things I remind myself often is not to not to bring him back into our love fest. But Dan Pink, I did an <laughs> interview with one time, and we talked for about thirty minutes offline after the interview, and I told him about a couple different things, and I mentioned I was frustrated with something, and that he had you know he had had it figured out and whatever, and he leans back and he goes, "Well, you got to remember, I've been doing this for twenty years. Right. You've been doing this for two. <laughs> and really, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't advice per se, like you should yeah. do this, but it was great advice because it was just like remember where you are in the journey, right? And that'll that'll make that'll allow you to have a way better perspective on where you should be, right? And I, right. I tend to forget that I tend to look forward, which is good, and that's how I think that's how you achieve. But the easy thing to do is to forget how that you haven't actually traveled as far as you think you've traveled. So having a more realistic expectation of where you should be for what you're doing, um, I really don't have. And I remember that often. I get frustrated often. And I sort of repeat that in my mind. I wish actually I had stopped the recording. I wish I would have continued the recording and just had yeah. that. Like, and then I would have put it on my iPod and just loaded it up every time <laughs> I got frustrated. But oh well. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah, that's probably that's nice. the best advice I've received. I don't know how that applies to other people's careers, but I apply it to mine almost every time I'm frustrated. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
Okay, so question two, what's, what's an average day look like for you? And I know today was not an average day for you. We were talking about this offline. <laughs> That's um, right. Eating, eating pizza and drinking wine at 9.30 in the morning. But what's <laughs> an was average like day look like for you? You know, I have um, uh, probably three different average days. Um, you know, one of them is I'm in creating mode. So I have two tables in my, uh, in my office, the one I'm talking to you on now. This is my good work computer and my good work desk. It's a standing desk. And then over there looking out my window, I've got my great work table, which is another small IKEA desk, but that's where I sit and I create. So I write, writing articles, you know, creating the content that, and the, the thought pieces that try and drive box of crayons and our brand and me and all that sort of stuff. So sometimes I'll be doing a creative day where I've got that and that's the key thing that I'm doing. Um, sometimes I'm on delivery mode, although I do that less and less because part of what we're trying to do at Box of Crayons is have other people deliver our programs for us. Um, but honestly, there are times where I love doing that. You know, my favorite, one of my favorite things from 2015 was being on the stage in front of 8,000 nurses down in San Diego and giving a keynote speech there and going, this is a rock star, amazing. It was fantastic. Um, and then there's a good deal of um, meeting people who are kind of, you know, senior folks, HR and L&D often in organizations and kind of having conversations about bringing Box of Crayon stuff into their organization. So, you know, I'm either performing, creating or in my sales mode as part of that. And that's kind of the mix. Yeah. Huh. So I have to ask you about the two desks. Like, so that's that's been working well for you because I'm we're, so we're my wife and I are building a house right now which my a couple years ago my younger son stole my office and decided he wanted his own bedroom right <laughs> um, crazy thing for Kids. a one year old to ask for <laughs> right and so we're we're building the new one with the office or whatever and I'm literally thinking about that question of like you know I really need two desks I need a standing one to be a to be yeah. standing at to do the podcast at etc. And I look at those like adjustable ones, and I'm yeah. like, that's not for me. I think I just want two. Um, I've never yeah. seen proof of concept, so I thought I invented well, the idea. So you're my I, proof of concept. I can give you anecdotal advice that it works for me. My theory is the body leads the brain, and if you read anything like Amy Cuddy's new book, Presence or whatever, it's like if you want to work in a certain way, how you physically are really determines that. So what I do when I sit at my great work desk, and it's you know it's a cheap cheapish desk from Ikea, there's nothing particularly fancy about it. I go, this is where I show up to be creative. So I'm, I'm priming myself to actually deliver at that level. When I'm here, I'm like, this is where I show up to be businesslike and focused and get things done. And I prime my body to do that. And I do think there's something about managing yourself somatically, you know, body-based, actually allows you to be more productive and efficient in terms of how you want to show up. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And All right. Again, Turning the tables concept. here, for you, what's an average day? Okay, so um, I actually, most of my days are, are, are 48 hours long. Uh, and I don't mean that as a, as a, um, as a like in a uh, hyperbole. I just mean it's easiest for me to think in 48-hour chunks. So the average 48-hour chunk for me is I, I still teach at the university, actually, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday during the semester. Right. Wow. And so if it's during the, uh, during the semester – the average day for me is – well, actually, the average day for me is get up at 4.30 in the morning to one kid screaming or the other, take care mm -hmm. of that, maybe fall back asleep, maybe not. Um, then wake up for real and, and have breakfast, get the kids ready, et cetera. Um, go into to work. I teach classes in the morning and in the af in early afternoon and then, and then mid-afternoon. If I have, I'm either doing something like like this, recording a podcast or meeting with students or whatever. Or what's what's more common now and growing to be more common is from there I drive to the airport and I right. get on an airplane 
and I go somewhere and then I sleep in a hotel somewhere and then I wake up the, and I speak and I do the I haven't done the 8,000 person rock star thing so I got to take my Dan Pink advice from earlier by the way <laughs> yeah exactly um, but so then and I speak and then I, I fly home hopefully in time to put the kids to bed the second night nice. um, sometimes later at night and so it's really that kind of combination of like I'm, I'm Monday, Wednesday, Friday I'm teaching Tuesday, Thursdays I'm usually speaking if I, if it's, if I don't have any speaking gig that week then usually I've loaded Tuesday, Thursday up with like podcasts time and writing time and that sort nice. of thing. So really it's that 48 hours because I alternate between teaching days and creative days. Nice. Yeah, that's very cool. So third question, uh, and I know that, that some of this is, is my book and the answer for me would be your book, but besides that, what are you reading right now? Uh, so it's interesting. You know, my wife is actually uh, was trained as a, a librarian and in particular, YA librarian, young adult librarian. So I read pretty eclectically. My background is actually in English literature as well. So there's always a kind of mix of different books of books on my bedside table. So I've, the moment I've got Neil Stevenson, who's this brilliant, he's this brilliant brain, and his book is called Seven Eves. Here's the opening sentence. The, the moon blows up into seven pieces. <laughs> That's how it starts. And then it's like, how does humanity survive when the, the moon's blown up? So it's a huge tome. It's fantastic. I think his best book is one called Cryptonomicon. Um, I'm reading SPQR by Mary Broad. So that's a history of the Roman Empire. Um, pretty interesting, although not quite as fascinating as it might be. Um, and then in terms of a business book at the moment, um, I'm going to just go and grab it because I can't remember the exact title. Yeah, no, not a problem. Here we go. It's called The New Ecology of Leadership, Business Mastery in a Chaotic World by David Hurst, H-U-R-S-T. It's pretty dense. It's pretty uh, slightly academic, but it kind of uh, it, it brings into the conversation about what does chaos theory and ecology tell us about what a sustainable leadership is. Hmm. So uh, it, a little obscure, perhaps, but an interesting read as well. Yeah. No, that's that's quite interesting. We actually were talking about biology 101 earlier with environments, yeah, we were. So no, now I need now I need to check that out. T tell me what's on your bedside table. What are you reading at the moment? Okay, so uh, well, what's on my bedside table is a really esoteric book called Throne, and it is T H R O W N, like throw someone. Oh yes, and, yeah. and or or actually like throw down. And it's actually it's this really weird book. It's a you know an, an Iowa MFA writing student and philosophy student, like joint master's degree student who somehow fell in love with mixed martial arts. Now, <laughs> listeners to my show will know that for a long time I've done um, judo and, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu as, as a hobby, right? And, um, and so uh, it's this really fascinating kind of quasi-intellectual or philosophical look at the sport as she follows around two different fighters, one who has already reached the pinnacle of his career and one who's on the oh, upward trajectory. And it's really, I mean, it's like if you've ever wanted to psychoanalyze uh, Rocky, this is this book, right? Nice. Um, but it doesn't just psychoanalyze Rocky. It does the entire sort of industry of um, prize fighting, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of a really fascinating, not business related in, in the slightest, um, but still fascinating to me. And then I think, um, interestingly, you already mentioned her, but I think the most recent what would count as a business, yeah, what would count as a business book that I've just read is I finished reading um, Presence a little while ago. Just yeah, before I picked nice. up Throne, I finished reading Presence. And, you know, I mean, overall, I think I knew what I was getting into when I read it because, I've you know, I've seen the TED Talk, et cetera. But I was actually – I was really pleased with Amy's desire to write about other people's research. Yeah. You know, typically when you have that superstar – 
researcher who also is a Ted star, et cetera. Their book just becomes each chapter is one of their studies that they mm-hmm. wrote upon and blah, blah, blah. And really, I mean, her, I mean, you remember this cause you read it. Yeah. The, um, the majority of the book is actually other people's research on the, the mind body connection, exactly. the presence connection being in the moment. Connection. And, I, and I really enjoyed that, that it was really more like her take on a lot of other people's research than just, I mean, it was there, there were chapters that were just her research, but that's I was not expecting that. And yeah. I really enjoyed that. And, and it, you know, I think it's really meaningful when somebody does that. Nice. Yeah. See, so, I, thought, I thought it was a really generous book as well. Yeah. Um, and even actually, even, I don't know if I liked this or not, but she incorporates a lot of, um, emails from listeners since the Ted talk went live and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So it's really, a, it was a, it was a diversity of viewpoints I wasn't expecting. So I really liked it for that reason. Okay, so here's our here's my favorite question to ask, and also our toughest. What do you believe that most people don't? <sighs> okay, because you and I were talking about how I spend the morning, which was doing a a, a local restaurant of ours is being filmed for a restaurant show, and um, <laughs> so I'm influenced by the fact that I had pizza at nine o'clock and wine at nine o'clock this morning, and I was going to go to something like. Pizza is the best food in the world. But I'm trying to think of something more profound than that right now. What do I believe that most people don't? Um, uh, you know what? That is a tricky question. I need to think about that for two seconds. Can I, can I turn the tables on you and then that will give me time to, to chew on it a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, do you yeah. believe that most people don't? Yeah. Um, I have to give an answer that hasn't already been taken by one of the past episodes of the podcast. So that, that involves me to think more. I, I mean, I overall um, – so this is – actually, here, I'll tell you not what I believe – so I'll tell you what not what I believe that most people don't, but what I believe as a, as a class – as a trained psychologist, scientist, mm-hmm. that element that most scientists don't, and that is that I believe that not everything is capable of measurement and therefore yeah. every model we come up with is what I like to call a useful lie, meaning yeah. that like it's not 100 percent true, I but it that. is very useful. And, and what that comes with then is a willingness to loosely hold on to the models that we have. And I right. really, I mean, that's sort of a theme of what we've been talking about throughout, that as, as mm-hmm. business changes, we need to change the management models we're using. But I think that applies to, to everything, that we need to have sort of uh, strong beliefs weakly held, as Bob Sutton would put it. But we need yeah. to think about what, what model are we using to make our decisions on and be open to the idea that that model doesn't work 100% of the time. Because I don't think every, I don't think we'll figure out how to measure every little thing about what matters. And therefore, our models will always be useful lies. You know, there's a great quote that says exactly that. It's from a guy, a statistician called George Box, who says, all oh, models are wrong, but some are useful. Some models are useful. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and I love that. I'm like, exactly. that's, that's a great thing to remember, particularly for you and I, who, you know, can, can get caught up in our own theories a little bit sometimes. It's right. like, none of this is the truth. It's just somebody's best guess, a different lens to, to look through the world. Right. And I think that the frustrating thing is that most pe- a lot of people who get skeptical at evidence-based medicine, I mean, the whole ivory tower syndrome is in reality people's unwillingness to accept the, Im- the insights from research. Yeah. So I think, we, you know, there's, there's a danger on both sides. We can either just throw the whole thing away and just go with our gut and past yeah. experience and, you know, we're a sample size of one. But there's also this over-reliance on evidence-based management or evidence. Mm-hmm. My wife's a, a physician, evidence-based medicine. And we have to realize that not we're, we'll never actually discover the answers to everything. It's, it's just sort of not possible. Um, okay. and, or, or, if we, or if we do, it's a mm-hmm. thousand years from now. So you and yeah. I right now in 2016 just have to know that, our, that all mo- – like, like the quote says, that all models 
are wrong, but some are useful, and then be yeah. open to the idea that we might be at the end of the life cycle of the model that we're, we were trained to use and be open to the idea of a new model. So here's my answer to the question, and it's, in, it's a little incoherent, but I'll tell you this. My favorite picture uh, – yeah, my favorite picture is one called the pale blue dot. And I don't know if you've seen this, but it's – I think it's shot from Voyager just as it kind of vanishes out of the universe and it's looking back on the Earth and you see through a beam of sunlight a single pixel, which is a single blue dot, which is the last – kind of time it can see earth before it just vanishes and it's no longer seen and for me it is an amazing reminder of just how small and how insignificant we actually are here on earth i mean and i'm balanced on that it's like it is amazing that we are here on earth it is extraordinary you know one of my favorite books is a guy called bill bryson and his book a short history of nearly everything it just reminds me of what a series of lucky things have happened that allow us to be sentient human beings enjoying a conversation like this. But for me, there's something around the belief. I don't mean to sound nihilistic about this, but it, you know, none of this stuff really matters in the end because we're just a tiny, tiny dot in this vast universe of amazingness. Yeah, but it is amazing. We'll go with that. (laughs) It is amazing. Exactly. So the the um, the last question we asked actually comes from the title of my podcast is Radio Free Leader. Yeah. What makes someone a leader? Um, I think it is uh, courage to um, make a decision and compassion to embrace the people the decision affects. Hmm. No, that's good. That's really good. Thank you. I don't know if I should. I don't know if I should say because then everybody who who, who listens to any interview after this one will say, "Oh, that's the wrong answer." But no, I mean, I think there's. If you actually, I think it's fine to have multiple definitions. I think, yeah. in my mind, I this is actually a question I like asking but don't like answering because I think what there's a great Warren Bennis line about people don't set out to become leaders. Right. Instead, they they set out to do what inspires them, to do what they're motivated to do, and to really express themselves fully. And when you do that, people can't help but follow you. Right. And I mean, at that moment, then we then you're a leader, and then we talk about what you need to do. You need to have that courage. You need to take you know take care, mm-hmm. of, be responsible for people, etc. But I think it starts with that internal thing. And right. um, and yeah, so I'm not sure if that makes someone a leader, but I think it's an important thing to remember is that the the best leaders never started out even wanting to be leaders. They wanted to express themselves fully, and people couldn't help right. but follow that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, cool. Well, this has been really actually exciting. It has. It's um, been a this, fun format. Yeah, yeah we've totally. We've kind of broken so, our own rules here. I know. It's been great. So this this is the part where I would say, thank Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. But I guess I should also say thank you for having me on the Great <laughs> Work know. Podcast. So, Thanks yeah. for the yin and the yang. Okay, so this is what I want my people who are listening in to know. Tell me a little bit. Tell me about the name of your new, your new book. Tell me where they can find it. Tell me where they can find out more about you and your work. Right. No. So yeah. So so the best thing to do is is, is probably find me at davidberkus.com or if you can't remember the website address, I have a. I'm fortunate. I have a really unique name. So just type David Burgess into Mr. Google, and Mr. Google will bring you there. Um, so that's probably the best. U.S. Right. B-U-R-K-U-S. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And then from there is the podcast. Radio Free Leader runs off of that website. Um, nice. Information about under new management is there. So it's it's all just there. Lovely. 
So and your and and yourself boxofcrayons.biz is the is the yeah, address. Yeah, B I Z or B I Z depending on which side of the border you're listening to. Mm. Um and the new book is called The Coaching Habit Ask More, Ask Less. No, say less, <laughs> ask more and change the way you lead forever and that'll be on Amazon and all the all the bookstores near you for sure. Yeah. No, and I should say it's a, it's a great book. I want everybody to um to check it out because it's it really and we didn't even get in time to get into my favorite question, which is the lazy question. So there, if you're interested, if you're intrigued by the lazy question, go go check it out. I think it's really useful. And as I said earlier, one of the primary ideas in underneath management is ditch performance appraisals. And if we could get everybody asking these questions exactly. that are in this book, we could actually do it. And and that's the idea that would probably that's the future that would be evenly dispersed the fastest. So check out that book for for how to do it. Thanks, David. All right, thank you so much.